welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions. Questions about Buddhist practice. Questions you may have that are important for the success and progress of your practice. So this isn't a time for intellectual curiosity or philosophical discussion or debate. This isn't a theoretical session. This is a session designed to be practical and helpful. So if you need help, that's what we're here for. You can start asking questions anytime. Just post them in the chat. We'll spend the first 15 minutes as an opportunity for people to ask their questions and as an opportunity for us to begin the most important thing, mindfulness. So we spend 15 minutes in mindful meditation, walking or sitting, or walking and sitting. And I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions.
All right, we're back here on. We'll close the chat. Anything except questions? If you have questions, again, feel free to post them. Anything else will just be removed. If you don't have any questions, or once you've asked them, just close your eyes, stay mindful, and we'll listen as we begin to answer. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Other than diligence of practice and improvement in mindfulness to note experiences during meditation, I've not experienced any clear thinking regarding impermanence, suffering, and non-self. In addition to noting the discouragement and doubt regarding progress, how can one assess one's progress in order to make sure the practice is not proceeding incorrectly? Usually this is because you're not really clear on what the meaning of impermanent suffering and non-self is. This is a really real strong sticking point for a lot of people as they get caught up in intellectual ideas of these three things. And uh, you'll never see that. You'll never see what you think it is. It'll surprise you. When you do see it, it'll challenge you. Um, it'll lead to discouragement. I mean, one thing I could say offhand is you're experiencing non-self. sense that you can't make anything happen. You're not in control. It can be quite frustrating and discouraging when you practice and you're just like wandering in the mind and you don't have any control. You don't have any buttons you can press. You don't have any switches you can pull. You don't have any control. You're not in charge. And that is scary and frustrating and leads to a lot of doubt and so on. But it doesn't lead to any of these things. These are the habits that arise. And they're also non-self. You're not in charge of them. So if you're not seeing that you're not in charge of the discouragement and doubt, then uh, th that's where you're failing. You have to start looking at those, look at the discouragement. So you note the discouragement and doubt, but you can't keep coming back. And as long as you hold on to them as me and mine, I'm discouraged, I have doubt, my practice and so on, you're going to suffer. But what happens when you continue, if you continue and persist, uh, in the face of all of that, you'll start to see how much suffering you're causing yourself by clinging to these things, by clinging to and worrying about progress and worrying about some kind of something you're going to get out of the practice and so on. And that's real progress. That's that's suffering, right? You're suffering. Say you're not seeing... What you, you talk about clear thinking regarding these things, and that's probably the wrong way of looking at it. Clear thinking, clear thought, uh, really just means clear thought about the experience. I mean, there's no clear thought about the three characteristics. That's not really how it goes. Clear thought is a clear thought about the experience, like this is this, and seeing it for what it is, as a momentary experience that arises and ceases. You're seeing the three characteristics. You can't help but see them. It's like looking at a tiger and not seeing its stripes. You cannot look at a tiger and not see its stripes, but because you have these conceptual ideas of what the three characteristics excuse me, of what the three characteristics are, that's where the trouble comes. You, um, you, you, you worry about and, and you, you doubt because you're not experiencing any kind of intellectual uh, understanding and that's never going to happen. Or that, that's not, even if it does happen, it's not helpful. It's not useful. All that's useful is that you see things clearly arising and ceasing. That is impermanent suffering and non-self. 
It's not a sign like we would expect. It's not like a textbook where you read a paragraph and you say, oh, I get what that means. There's never going to be a moment where you say, oh, it's all impermanent. I mean, there may be, but again, when there is, that's just a side effect. It's a byproduct. It's not important. It will be much more visceral. You will, if anyone asks you, are these things, if I asked you, is the discouragement permanent or impermanent? Is the doubt permanent or impermanent? And are they, if you hold on to them, if you see them as, uh, as, as, as you or yours or a problem that you're dealing with, is that suffering or happiness? Suffering. Can you control them? Can you make them come and make yourself not be discouraged and not doubt? No. And can you manage them? No. The more you feed them, the more strongly they will come, and they're just bad habits that have grown. Mindfulness is a habit. So, if you're asking about how you can assess your progress, um, it's really the wrong way of looking at it. You should assess your uh, practice, assess your implementation of the practice. So if you're implementing it correctly, that's all you have to worry about, because that will feel right. That will feel good. And it's a mistake to start asking, what am I getting out of this? What's the result? Because as soon as you do that, you're no longer present. You're in the future, you're in the past, you're in conceptual reality, and you're no longer mindful. So you're not going to gain anything out of that. And if you continuously do that, you're just failing as a meditator. You're not actually doing anything productive. And so, of course, you won't progress. You'll feel like it'll be a, like a, a self-perpetuating thing, you know, where you, you uh, a self-defeating thing, where you, you by, by wondering about what you're getting out of it, you stop getting anything out of it. If instead you focus on the quality of the moment, Right, right now, and try and be, uh, be uh, what's the word? Be careful. Be fastidious. I don't know something like fastidious, but just be careful. Be cautious. Be methodical, uh, and and be patient. And you work at the moment to moment experience then uh, it's it's impossible that good things could not happen it's impossible that the result of the practice could not come and i can i can prove that i can i can give you a logical proof of that and it's very simple it's that the same thing goes for negative qualities all of these negative things like discouragement doubt worry fear liking disliking they are all exactly the same they build they grow they become habitual everything that your mind inclines toward does that. It's impossible. It's it's literally and, and obviously and common sense factually impossible that couldn't have some result. Now you can ask, is that result going to be good for me? That's a totally different question. But whether that result will come is is unquestionable because that's how the mind works. That's how everything in the mind works. It all affects you. If you if you study at school, you become more studious. Right? If you work at a job, you become more proficient mentally at, at doing your job. If you engage in sensual, sensual pleasures, you become more addicted to sensual pleasures. It's, it's impossible that it should not happen. And so mindfulness, there's, it, I mean, what's happening is just this, this habit of doubting. We, we have a habit of doubting, especially in something like this, which is not really under your control. It's not really something you can, again, push buttons or flip switches. You just... Um, you have to really stop all of that and just watch. And that's a hard thing to do. It's not a something we're familiar or comfortable with. 
But as you develop that skill, of course it's going to change you. You'll become more patient, more objective, and less controlling, less concerned with control and less concerned with outcomes and so on. Much more present, much more here. Like, who cares what's going to happen? Well, let's worry more about what happens here and now, what's happening in the moment. Who cares about what's going to happen? Am I getting something? Who cares? What am I doing now? Don't, if you start worrying or getting upset about progress and results, again, you just lose the thread and you, you, you lose yourself. You lose your connection with reality. How should you manage negative thoughts? A long question to a short question. Um, there's no such thing as negative thoughts, first of all. Thoughts are just thoughts. So, I mean, language is hard because what do we mean by thought? What do we mean by negative? What do we mean by manage? But especially what do we mean by thoughts? But it's important to understand that there's more here. It's a fairly simplistic uh, premise behind your question. The thought is much more than just thought. There's the thought, and then there's the attitude related to the thought. Clinically, uh, consider what it would be like to kill yourself. Let's say, if I sit here and I think about how, you know, imagine, let's say, hanging a noose from the ceiling or taking some pills, I can think of all of that without any intention or any quality of mind related to actually wanting to kill myself. On the other hand, I can really, really want to kill myself or I want to hurt someone else. Uh, you can likewise, you can think what it would be like to murder a person. Uh, so it's not likely. I mean, it's problematic because certain thoughts are going to trigger negative states. If, I st if a suicidal person starts thinking about um, killing themselves, then it's quite likely to trigger unwholesome attitudes. But you have to separate those two. There's no such thing as negative thoughts, and that's important in terms of dealing with them. Thoughts are not a problem, and as soon as you make them a problem, well, you create problems. Your, your attitude changes. You become upset, and that's the negative side of things. So, I read our booklet. I don't know if you're interested in doing the at-home course, but that's how you would start to learn to manage, um, probably not the right word, but face and understand and free yourself from the negative attitudes that result in thoughts and result from thoughts. But certainly thoughts, you should see thoughts and thinking. But do read our booklet if you haven't and consider the at-home course. We have courses. Once you've done that, you can come and do an intensive course at our center. Is there much benefit to using guided meditations? And if so, how often would you suggest using them? I find that they often have powerful bits of wisdom, and some are led by monks. It's kind of a beginner thing. It's, it's uh, quite helpful for people who need the guidance, but then it becomes a crutch if you continue to rely on them. And so it's much harder to do it on your own. It's much more of a challenge to be self-sufficient. But as a result, it's going to uh, 
push you push you harder i mean the thing when you're listening you're going to be distracted by the thoughts eventually it becomes a a, a crutch where you'll never if you, if you need the if you need crutches to walk then you're better off using them but you're never going to run a marathon using crutches so eventually if you want to run you have to throw away the crutches but but generally i mean especially for people beginning quite good and helpful sure During meditation, whenever a defilement arises regarding another person, if I just observe the defilement, I see it fading away. However, if I also note the person, then it does not fade. My thoughts are not under my control, so not imagining the person is not in my control. Am I doing something wrong? You're seeing non-self in that you're not in control of it fading. And you're you're not really maybe clear on that because you're thinking you should be able to control it. If I do it this way, if I do, but it's out of your control, and so it's it's barking up the wrong tree, trying to do something to make it fade. That's not important. The fact that you sometimes see it fade and sometimes don't see it, again, this is impermanence. You're you're seeing these things. So this is what's this is what's valuable about this. Uh, your thoughts are not under your control. That's great to see. So yeah, you're not doing anything wrong. Uh, the three characteristics are just a part of reality. So when you are, your job is to keep up. So when you're imagining a person, then you take that as your object. It's not a problem that something doesn't fade away. That's just out of your control and unpredictable. And if you cling to it, it's suffering. So yeah, just try and keep up and be flexible because your mind's going to take you on a ride, take you for a ride. It would be twists and turns and unexpected arising. So it will change in unexpected ways, and your job is just to keep up, just to be flexible and adapt to whatever arises. Sometimes boredom or pain will arise slowly, but when I note these sensations, they disappear. I am unable to tell exactly when they are occurring. Should I try to place these, or is noting enough? No, boredom, well, pain, yes. Pain it has a physical location, so that's a little easier, but boredom is mental, so it doesn't have a location. But no, you, don't, you also don't have to try to locate them. I mean, when you feel pain, go to the pain. It's uh, pain is actually mental as well, so you just note it uh, as the pain. Say pain, pain as you experience it. Going to it isn't the location so much as the experience, right? It's about not focusing on something else or not being unfocused. When you feel pain, just focus on the pain. The where isn't the where in relation to the body isn't isn't important, but it's more like the where in terms of your focus on it. Can you please elaborate on what the practice of conduct is and how it coincides with the rest of the training? Conduct. Jarana would be conduct. I mean, I don't know what you mean by this, but... Vija Jarana. Jarana is... 
Yeah, I mean, usually we'd, that would be ethics. Um, sila is often translated as conduct. So ethics is right speech, right action, right livelihood. This is pretty theoretical. You can look all this up, but basically keep the five precepts and have right livelihood. Is it okay if one meditates while seated in a chair or while listening to music? Seated in a chair is fine. Uh, listening to music is... Hearing music isn't a problem. Listening to music is a big problem. I mean, the question is, why are you, why are you turning on music? Most likely because you like it or because of you like the way it makes you feel, and that's a real hindrance. Anything that you do to, to encourage liking is just going to be a bigger and bigger attachment and addiction for you. It's going to help you avoid the things that we're trying to face, like the unpleasantness or boredom or, or anything else. Whatever the reason for you wanting to turn on music is, that's what we're trying to uh, face. So you avoiding it is really going to be to your detriment. But sitting in a chair isn't a problem. The one issue with sitting in the chair is you, you're going to also be avoiding... Um, any kind of pain that might come from ordinary seated meditation. So we do encourage people who are fit, able to sit cross-legged on the floor. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong with sitting in a chair. I have extreme fear of death and everything ending if I meditate too much and makes me want to stop. What should I do to get over this problem? Well, those are just experiences. You have to not see them as problems or as, as anything, as a hindrance to your meditation. It's just fear. You don't have the fear. The fear is something that arises. So you have to change your attitude about it. Fear just arises and ceases. There's nothing really extreme about it, though it may seem more intense than you'd expect or intense to you. But it's still just fear. Just say afraid, afraid. doesn't matter what you're afraid of either. Let go of that. If you're thinking about something and it triggers the fear, that's a part of the cycle, so you have to catch that when you're thinking about, say, death, just not thinking. If you're worried about it, worried. If you're afraid. And when fear arises, afraid. Wanting to stop, you can note that as well. Wanting or that, that sort of thing, or disliking, if you dislike the practice. Not problems, they're just experiences. They're fueled often by views. If you have this view or this belief that it's going to cause you whatever, what do you say, uh, and everything ending or something like that. I mean, this is just beliefs or views, just see them as thought and let them go. Nothing's worth clinging to. How can I meditate on my current challenges with porn addiction? Well, like anything else, it's made up of component parts. There's the objects of your addiction, there's the liking of them, and there's any kind of uh, shame or guilt or anger or frustration you might have, feeling bad about it, worry or fear, and there's thoughts about it and so on. And all of those things are just objects of experience. You take them as objects. You have to understand that there's no quick fix, and there's no quick fix to any of these problems. There's something that you have to work at. Um, their habits, and if you build new habits, and if you refrain from the old
old habits and and build new habits, then they'll slowly go away. I mean, it's one of the hard for our birth as human beings depends upon sex, right? That's how pregnancy occurs. So there's something very carnal about rebirth. Our desire for the human body is what, what leads us here. So something that can take lifetimes to fully come. But if you want quick results, you have to do intensive practice. You have to really commit yourself to changing your habits. So this is what our courses are for. Are anger and fear related? What should I do with them other than noting? Yes, anger. Fear Fear is based on anger or aversion. And... I don't know why you're looking for something else. Noting is what you need to do. Um, you should certainly consider intensive practice if they're really uh, problematic and you're not able to deal with them in daily life. I mean, just in general, of course, everyone should consider doing intensive practice or just daily practice. Um, Anger and anger you can easily deal with. If it's anger anger or hatred towards a person, loving kindness, metta is helpful, friendliness it's called. And for fear, mindfulness of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha can also be helpful. And they give you reassurance and the safety of remembering these things as your refuge. They're a refuge from the things that you fear. Should we just note thinking as thinking, as we do seeing as seeing? If so, what's the difference between thinking and vitaka vichara? Yes, you should just note thinking as thinking. I'm not sure why, I don't quite understand why you bring vitaka vichara. I don't think you really understand that the meaning of vitaka vichara there. They're related to thought, but they are referring to the nature of the jhanas, uh, the samatha jhanas, so it's really applicable. Just a different sort of, a different usage of terminology, not really applicable here. Thinking is just thinking. I sometimes feel that nothing happens during meditation, but then later I will mindfully see the activities of the mind and be able to note thoughts. So I am a little confused. Do you have any advice? You can note confused, confused, but it's just a skill issue. You just have to practice. Uh, if if you didn't notice some things uh, during your practice, then well, you have to review and consider what you may have missed. Like, feel that nothing happens, well, something's happening. Do you feel calm, quiet? You should note those as well. Sometimes if you don't note them, you can become kind of subtly to them. Nikanti. That can be a hindrance. Make sure you note calm and quiet as well. I have trouble making through the rising due to distractions that arise. Do you have any advice? Should I just focus on the rising and falling only? You can do a little of that. Yeah, don't worry too much about other things in the beginning. 
really just kind of but that like it's it I, I don't i don't want you to get the idea that that's a valid long-term solution it's more like a, a temporary solution when you're for a beginner sure just start with the rising and falling do what you're what you're comfortable what you're able to or, or up to doing and slowly expand you know as you get more confident then you can start noting other things as well and slowly you get the hang of it you start to note more and more but uh, don't try and really block anything out don't be too worried about that the fact that you have trouble is usually a good sign because it means you're being challenged training is all about challenge and as you conquer challenges you you get more skilled it's simple if you're not ever challenged then you're not ever really going to grow All that we can know is conscious experience. Based on this, does an arahant know Nibbana directly, or only the conscious experience of Nibbana? Now, these are some theoretical questions. Did we really run out of all the practical questions? We've begun the second like, tier. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm just going to skip this one, I think. I mean, it's questions like these. There's not that there's not really an answer. I just don't want to get into it. It's, I don't see how it's a useful question. I have bad habits and don't meditate for months at a time. Do you have any practical tips to making a daily meditation habit? Hey, courses are the way to go. Again, I'm just repeating myself, but uh, the thing about a course is it builds the habit um, in isolation. It isolates you from other bad habits, so it gives you the opportunity to really work on the habit of mindfulness. So if you're not meditating for months at a time, it's maybe a sign that you need to train a little bit more to come and do a course at our center if you've done the at-home course. On the other hand, you know, it, it happens, and uh, the fact that you pick it up after months is, is a good sign. It means you haven't completely thrown out the idea. It means you have some connection and some appreciation, which is a really good state to have. So just try and pick it up when you can. Sometimes we're just immature, and it takes time to mature. But wait for a long time. You have to remember one thing you need. To, sometimes you need a kick in the pants to remember that you could die any time. That would be a real tragedy. If now you know how to practice in this life, who knows what's going to happen next life? And if you're not taking the opportunity, boy, oh boy, a real shame. In Majjhima Nikaya 52, it talks about the eleven doors to the deathless, the four Brahmaviharas, the four Jhanas, the first three Arupas. It says that while being in any of these states and seeing them as conditioned and impermanent, we can attain the deathless. How is it possible to have these insights while in these states? Well, technically you're not in those states. You have to come out of them. But you take it, it's technical because they're still taking them as the object, but you're seeing them as also impermanent suffering and non-self. So it's it's technically out because your your attitude has changed. Of course, stability of them could never allow you to see impermanence. But as you s sort of shift your awareness, we consider it to be out of them, because you're no longer uh, 
fixated on them, right? You're no longer absorbed in them. You're now looking at them. But you take them as an object, so it's kind of like you're still in them, or you're still uh, holding on to You're still grasping them in the very technical sense of grasping. just means you're holding them in, in your awareness. Could you please advise on the best way to deal with intense heat coming out of palms and body while meditating? There's nothing to deal with. Experiences are just experiences. So when you feel heat, you note it as hot. Say to yourself, hot, hot. That's the whole of the practice, is learning to see things just as they are and stop making more out of them than they are. The thing that you have to deal with it is the real issue. And if you change that perspective, nothing in the world you can't deal with. When uh, when you feel the heat, the problem is that you get upset about it or worried about it or liking it or disliking it or wondering even about it, doubting about it. Is it good? Is it bad? Or so on. Is it? All of these things are just adding. You're just making more out of it than it actually is. It's just heat. So that's not hot. Sometimes these things, we think of them as special, and we, we get excited about them, or kind of subtly attached, thinking we're doing something special. Because very strange things can happen. And when you get that ego about them, like, oh, look at me, I've got these special experiences, or you like them, or so on, that can be real, real problematic. So you have to change your attitude. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, feeling is just feeling, and thinking is just thinking. Should sitting meditation and walking meditation be done alternatively, or can I just stick to sitting meditation only? Done in alternation. We don't have a good English phrase. Done, done one after the other, done back to back. Yeah, it should be done together. You can just do sitting meditation, but uh, the reason why you want to stick with sitting meditation is the reason why you should be doing walking meditation, usually. Usually the reason you like sitting is is the whole of the problem. Well, it's, it's a big problem. And so doing walking will challenge you in a way that sitting won't, because sitting is more pleasant, more comfortable. That's the whole point. Uh, that's not the whole point, but that's a good reason to do, it's a great reason to do walking meditation first. I mean, another great reason, of course, is a more practical one, is that walking just helps with your sitting, helps you, f helps prevent you from getting into states of kind of clinging, or, or and it helps make you more aware and more when you do sitting. But uh, the biggest thing for people who say this thing, I think, is just the challenge, the fact that they don't like it, the fact that it's not pleasing to them in the way sitting is, or it's not easy, or it's not comfortable, or it's doesn't feel right or something like that. It's a good reason to do walking because that's, the, that's life. Life isn't always going to feel good or right. And dealing with that is a very important lesson. Facing that is a very important lesson. A touching point is not easy to grasp for noting, as in the case of walking, feet touching floor. Do we have to know for sure we are correctly grasping the touching points when noting? 
Well, it's meant to be not easy. Again, the challenge is the whole point. Not the whole point, but it's a, hu it's a huge part of the point. Um, so you struggling with this is, is um, that's a good reason to do it. Looking at how you struggles and wonders and worries and doubts. I think that's all I really have to say about this. I don't really want to give you any kind of concrete reassurance. Just um, deal not with your inability to do the practice as it, as you think it ex was explained or as you think it should be done, but um, how you react to that, how that affects your mind, how you dislike that or worried about it or doubt about it or that sort of thing. That's the whole reason. I mean, that's much more valuable to see those things. At least in the short term, it's going to be much more valuable. Once those work themselves out, then you can get a little bit better at it. As long as those things are there, you'll never really be good at it anyway. So you have to deal with the hindrances, the, the disliking, liking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, that's a worry, that sort of thing. But once you do that, then you'll find it gets a lot easier to do things like touching. Once you stop worrying and wondering and so on. When noting thinking, should I have a negative attitude towards it, like, I'm thinking and look how it's making me suffer, or is noting 100% neutral? Mm. Should I have a negative attitude? So, I mean, it's, you want, you want to be as no, you should just be objective, but there's more to it here. You can't control your attitude. So asking what you, attitude you should have is not meaningful. You may have a negative attitude when you think, well, you note, right? There may be a negative attitude, but you really have to note that. You have to note the negative attitude. Could you intentionally create attitudes of any kind? Of course not. That's practice. I don't know if you read the booklet. It sounds like you probably did, and it doesn't sound like you've stuck to it if you're, if you're thinking about that. Well, I mean, it's not hard to say. I mean, you're asking a question about is there something missing from the booklet that I should be adding, like a negative attitude? It probably relates a little bit to the idea of the three characteristics and wondering how the heck am I ever going to experience those and right this this kind of question that we had earlier. How do we experience the three characteristics? How do we understand them? It's the wrong tree. Your whole focus should just be on seeing things. Thinking should just be thinking. Whenever you have the idea of creating a negative attitude or getting upset about something or, or denouncing something or rejecting something, you should note that. Note that desire or that disliking or so on. I have wrong view of Parinibbana being a kind of annihilationism that prevents me from fully committing to practice without fear. Can you explain how Parinibbana is a refuge rather than just death? That's not going to help. I love how, I think this is sort of trying to reframe a question, theoretical question, so that it, it sounds practical. I don't know, I, I'm kind of teasing there. But um, yeah, it's not going to help. The point is, doubt, um, doubt isn't... Doubt isn't really cured by getting answers to your questions. In the short term, there's questions that you need answers for. 
and those are practical questions like many of the questions that i answer here i'm, I'm answering questions that's the point of this so many of those things those answers are for the purpose of assuaging doubt but your doubt here is about something impractical you're not having to grapple with parinibbana you really have no connection with that whatsoever it's not like you sit down oh no here comes parinibbana how do i deal with it right so it's impractical and so this is not a question you need answered. The doubts are not going to be helped by getting theoretical answers. The doubts have to be let go of. And the fear, right, the fear is something you have to deal with. So you grapple with the fear. The real answer is for you to focus on the thoughts and ideas, this idea you have about this thing you call parinibbana uh, as a thought, and try and see those just as thoughts before the doubt or the, the view or the fear comes up. Um, and then when the fear and the doubt and so on do come up, you have to be ready to note them as well. That's the real answer. Because intellect is, I mean, it, because it's a habit, your fear is habitual. And I give you an answer to one theoretical question, you're just going to have more doubts about other things. It's, it's infected, contagious. So make sure you note the doubt, note the fear, note the thinking, and so on. That's the answer. Because it's not specific to this one question. It's the attitude that you have to adjust your perspective and try to just look at things as they are. To see anatta. Some vipassana teachers say to focus on the experiencing subject and how that is also changing. How can one see non-self if one only focuses on the object of experiences while noting them? Well, you don't just focus on the objects of experience, you focus on the experience. You Okay, so intentionally you could say you just focus on the objects, but the thing is, when you focus on the objects, you also see the experiencing subject which is just the mind, I mean, that, the, the awareness of it. And you, you see how awareness also arises and ceases. And because the object arises and ceases, it's not self. And because the awareness of it arises and ceases, it's also non-self. Because you can't control the experience of the object, it's non-self. Because you can't control the, the awareness of the object, it's also non-self. You can't say, let me be aware of every single rising. Nope. There goes the mind somewhere else. Oh, that's non-self. And so So I don't know about what these other teachers... Well, I mean, it sounds like they... sounds like whatever they have said and you've interpreted is not wrong. Just, um... Well, I, I mean, yeah, the issue I take with it is the idea that it's somehow a separate activity. The Yoga says something very important and very clever. It says that to the degree that the physical, the object of experience becomes, the physical object of the experience becomes clear, to that same extent, the immaterial awareness of the object becomes clear. So you don't ever have to do anything separate to focus on the object. It's like a dog chasing their tail if you do. But if you focus on the physical, you'll see the mental as well. Can you speak on the mindfulness of dhammas? How is this to be understood according to the Mahasi method? 
Well, um, there's nothing really special about the way the Mahasi method looks at it. If you read the Satipatthana Sutta of the Buddha, it starts with the five hindrances, and so that's where we start. Liking, distractiveness, distraction, doubt. I don't know if you've read our booklet, but it does talk about this. The six senses are in there. So note the six senses. This is Dhamma. During daily life, should we use the postures or the five senses as a main object of meditation and note any mind states that may arise, then return to the main object? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I say in the last chapter of the booklet. That's usually what we tell meditators in the at-home course near the beginning. So you basically summed up how we teach. I think I have always meditated the wrong way. It has never given me peace, just isolation. So I've decided I'm just going to live my life. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, wanting peace, it's again focusing on, on results, and that kind of focus is just going to detract from the quality of your practice. So you should really adjust your attitude towards it. Don't Ask not what your meditation can give to you. Ask what your ask what you can give to your meditation. Uh, kind of a funny quote, funny paraphrase, but kind of um, surprisingly meaningful. But you don't have. It's not so much about what you can give to your meditation, though. It kind of is. It's more about uh, how you experience it. So again, as I've I've already talked about this throughout this session, is. Focus more on your experiences, especially your desire for peace. So much more than the peace that you're getting, you should focus much more on the desire for peace, whether or not you get it or not. Because you're missing the point. The point is not to feel peaceful. The point is to see clearly. And what you're not seeing clearly is how the real cause of suffering is not that you're not getting peace. The real cause of suffering is that you want it. If you can see that, then you'll never suffer, and your meditation will be smooth sailing. Can one achieve enlightenment as a layman? Yes. I do this meditation, but I also read the Bhagavad Gita and believed what it said there, like existence of soul and God. I also tried the techniques recommended there. Can you explain why it's not true? God isn't the sort of thing that could exist, neither is a soul. Um, you have to understand the way Buddhism looks at reality. We're not interested in conceptual ideas. You can never experience God. You can never experience soul. If God came down and stood before you and said, I am God and performed all these miracles like Jesus did or like Krishna did or that sort of thing, it would never amount to any mean anything meaningful. It would not be an experience of God. It would be an experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking. So Buddhism is more profound even than God. God could never impress a Buddhist. <laughs> God didn't impress Buddha like these Brahma came to the Buddha wasn't impressed. This is still just seeing and hearing and smell. These people these beings are not free from samsara. They're still experiencing seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. 
and anything they they sh they bring to us is still just going to be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, the the Mahabharata is is a piece of work. Like some good in it, but it's just because it's it's a huge, huge work of Indian culture, Hindu culture. You know, let's say Indian. Let's say Indian culture because it incorporates some Buddhist ideas as well. well. Maybe, yeah, sort of Buddhist ideas, but a lot of different ideas. Because what can you say about Hinduism? It was a mess. Not a mess in a bad way. It was a mess kind of in a good way, in that there were so many different teachers. And even today there are so many different teachers in India. There's maybe more homogeneity now, but whatever that word is. But um, like at the time of the writing of the Mahabharata, there was a lot of different ideas about, and there were the uh, indigenous like Shivites, and there were the Brahmins and the the forest dwellers, and the synthesizing of them and the meshing of all these different things, and then of course the Buddha and the giants in the mix, and so on. So. I think there's a lot of problems in the Mahabharata, like the the end part where where God says, "Oh, it's okay that you killed all your 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 countrymen, and haha, you're going to hell." But then, just just joking, you're going to heaven or something like that. I don't remember it. It's a bit of a mess. Um, but what does yeah the the Bhagavad Gita, the central message is that um, so apart from the problem with God and soul not being experiential. There's the part where Krishna tells Arjuna that it's okay to kill because that's just your dharma, right? You're not actually causing problems. So, yeah, that's never going to be true or right or or real. Just, I mean, yeah, you can have that view, but that view is never going to bring you peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. There's no way that killing your countrymen in any setting is ever going to be right you don't just i mean it's such a it's such a um authoritarian control measure to say you just do your duty as a warrior no matter what you know no matter how unwholesome it is it's what god wants i mean gosh people follow that kind of a god it's like the the, the it's like judaism people would follow the jewish god i don't understand it See, these, these are monsters. I followed the five precepts, but how can they be formally taken? We have a video a long, long time ago. I have an old video, but it's on our channel. You can look up the five precepts, I think. Five precepts. There should be a video about it. Maybe someone can post a link in the chat. Unless there are any urgent help me questions, we'll end it there. There are not, Bhante. Okay, well, thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris, Jim, for your help. Of course. May everyone find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Uh, too.